You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the fabulous 54 Below. Before we get started this evening, just a polite reminder, please take this moment to silence your cell phones, and also there is no flash photography, please. Welcome to the 54 Below podcast. I'm Nella Vera, the club's director of marketing. Our guest today is Walter Willison, who received a Tony Award nomination for his Broadway debut in 2 by 2 His Broadway credits also include Norman Is That You, Wild and Wonderful, Grand Hotel, and of course, the original Broadway production of Pippin, in which he was a standby for the title role before taking over as Pippin himself. On February 6th and 7th, Walter is returning to 54 Below to celebrate that iconic musical's 50th anniversary. Walter Willison, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you, Nella. I'm happy to be here. So you were nominated for a Tony for your Broadway debut in 2 by 2 a true musical theater dream. What was that experience like? Oh, wow. Um, it was pretty incredible. Um, I actually got the call at... Uh, 6.30, Craig Zayden, who was uh, writing for After Dark Magazine, was it where they announced it was different then, you know, that we didn't have computers or iPhones or anything. So he called me from Schubert Alley. he just come from the meeting and said, you got nominated for a Tony. Uh, nobody knew at the theater, so I didn't tell anybody till the next day. Um, it was a wonderful experience. It was so, it was so, I don't know, it was, it was like a dream. It was all like a dream. Unfortunately, it was kind of marred because our leading man star, Danny Kaye, was quite difficult and was not very happy about the fact that I was nominated and he wasn't. But, oh, um, gosh. <laughs> yeah, it was, he was really, he was really, I've talked about that too much on other, you know, on other podcasts and interviews, but he was, um, as I think everybody's read or heard, really not a very nice, happy man. So, uh, so I... You know, he forbid anybody from publicity, from publicizing it. There were no announcements in front of the theater. So it was kind of disappointing in that way. But for the, from the community, it was great. And I was on TV and it was, you know, it was just a great, great experience. It was a great, it was my dream. It was my dream. And it was a great part. Richard Rogers, Peter Stone, Martin Charnon. I mean, Joe Layton directing, who just won Emmy Awards for the Barbra Streisand special. So it was a dream team uh, for 1970, that was the dream team of Broadway, and yeah. um, and I've been identified with those songs ever since. So it's it's pretty cool. It was pretty cool. Yeah, it was great. It was great. And I, as as Karen Ziemba says, once you're nominated for a, a Tony or an Oscar, you have two extra words in front of your name for the rest of your life. You know, Tony <laughs> nominee Walter, and that's pretty cool. That's true, and it's pretty cool. So thank you for mentioning it. That is true. I mean, definitely. I know we've heard stories about the production and they're part of kind of our theater lore um including the fact that danny Kay, you know who you mentioned was a comic and often improvised a lot of his bits how did the cast adjust to that well it wasn't so much that he was a comic uh let me try to give you the short version he was when the show opened out of town he was terrified because he hadn't been on stage in a musical for such a long time and he was really good. He was quite brilliant in the show. When it opened on opening night, he was quite brilliant, and he got rave reviews. Um, the cast all got excellent reviews. I got wonderful notices, the kind you dream about as a kid or mm -hmm. as an adult. And, um, and you know, they always knock the books. They knock the book. But uh, Dick's music got nice reviews. Everything was terrific. 
But Danny just was very undisciplined. And early on in the run, he started screwing around and ad-libbing a little mm-hmm. bit. But it was uh, was really irritating to everybody. And then it got to be February, and um, it got to be January. And he was screwing around. Dick Cavett, he'd been on the Dick Cavett show the night before. And Dick Cavett said to him, oh, you're so graceful when you dance around. And Danny started to do his little Wizard of Oz dance that he would do on the TV show. And the next night, Dick Cavett was in the audience. So Danny spent the entire performance making asides to Dick Cavett. And when he got to the big title song, he had a little dance number. And he started doing his little dance number. And um, and he, he screwed himself up. He uh, pulled a tendon, and literally on stage, his legs started swelling up. We oh, sat on no. the arc while everybody else danced <laughs> around. Yeah. And uh, the stage manager brought the curtain down at the end of the number. He went out to the hospital, and he had a torn tendon. And oh, he my had, goodness. Yeah, and he was out of the show for two weeks. Harry Goss was in the show, for, did, did his part for two weeks. And, of course, you know, you can't imagine today, but, but in 1970, Danny Kay was like a superstar, like Judy Garland, like, you know, Hugh Jackman. And uh, so people were coming to see yeah. Danny Kaye. The last they did not want to see Harry Goss. But when Danny Kaye came back into the show, he was wearing this plastic cast that was Velcroed oh, no. on. And uh, <laughs> it gave him the excuse to do everything that he hadn't been permitted to do. And the minute Joe Layton, we had two days of rehearsal. Joe's idea was restage the show like the man who came to dinner is in a wheelchair. So why can't Noah be on crutches and in a wheelchair? Because he, he youthens during the show. He starts mm-hmm. out at 600 and he becomes 90. So yeah. when he was 600, he would be in the wheelchair. When he was 90, he'd be on the crutches. And they had appropriate, David Hayes designed appropriate biblical looking crutches and wheelchair. But... <laughs> When Joe started to restage the show to accommodate that, every time something came up that Danny had never liked or had fought about and didn't want to do, he would say, oh, my leg. Oh, I don't know if I can do this. Oh, God. Oh, my goodness. And so, yeah. So the second day of rehearsal, um, we were on stage, and the stage manager got a call. And he came on stage. So Joe's been called to California to work on a movie, so I'm going to re- finish restaging the show. Well, I called Joe right after the rehearsal. Of course, he hadn't. He said, he's won. He's finally won. He fought for all these things in rehearsal that he couldn't get. Uh, and he won some battles, lost some other ones. And now, no matter if Joe asked him to do anything he didn't want to do, he would say, oh, my leg, my leg. And so, of course, he came on stage and you know said, I'm glad to be here tonight. I'm glad to be anywhere. And it was downhill from there. And funny thing was, years later, decade, I ran into Dick Cavett and we talked about it. I had not seen him in, God, 30 years. And Dick said, you know, the funny thing about that, he said he hated, he couldn't stand Danny Kay. Ah. And so the only reason he said the crack to him about, on his show about you're so graceful is because he couldn't think of anything else to say. So <laughs> that's what provoked Danny into doing that dance. But it got worse and worse and worse. And the, the week when I was nominated for Tony, he, wouldn't, he didn't, wouldn't go on with me that afternoon. Oh he wouldn't goodness. do the show if I went on, so I was not permitted to go on it uh, because Danny Kay said it was either him or me. Uh, That's crazy. When I went to the, yeah, <laughs> when I went to the Tony Award party, they said that the reason that they said Danny Kay had not been nominated because the the Tony Award is for maintaining a level of excellence in the theater, and it was the first and only time in history they nominated um, 
a replacement. They nominated Larry Kurt for company, who would replace Dean Jones early in the run. Uh, and it was Larry Kurt, Bo- uh, Bobby Van, and Hal Linden who won. And Larry got Danny's nomination. And Rady Harris told me, who was on the committee, said, you know, um, if Danny had been nominated, he would have won because a major part of the um, critics had seen Danny in when the show opened, and he was brilliant. Right. But he did not deserve to win a Tony because it's for maintaining a level of excellence mm. in the theater, which he was not doing. So they purposely did not nominate him. Wow. And after the awards, Joan Copeland said to me, best thing that ever happened to you was you were nominated for Tony. Best thing that ever happened to you is you didn't win the Tony because Danny's plane is all fueled up. You know, he had his own plane. He's at, he And he's all packed, and he was ready to leave. If you had won the Tony tonight, he was hopping his plane to California, and uh, the show would have closed tomorrow. And that was the truth. The week later, next week, there were letters in the New York Times complaining about two actors, James Coco in, in uh, the Neil Simon play, and, um, and Danny, and saying, we paid the... It, outrageous price of $22 to, for a ticket to see this show. <laughs> and Danny Kay is screwing around. And they said the only one who isn't screwing around is Walter Willison, who plays the young romantic lead. Well, that was, you know, then Danny started doing even worse things on stage. Yeah. It, and, and he, for the next nine months, he continued to do his nonsense. And the, it's very sad because when he did the show correctly, he was really good. By the end of the nine months, if you hear the recording of the last performance, he was all over the map. He was making tempos yeah. go fast. He was insulting Joan Copeland on stage. It was a real embarrassment. Um, Dick Rogers was... Well, the f- interesting thing is, Dick Rogers became like a grandfather of me for the rest of his life. I did many shows for him. He was a wonderful man. Uh, I loved him very much. Joe Layton was my surrogate father. He and his wife, Evelyn, were like my surrogate parents, again, yeah. for the rest of his life. I did a movie for him. Marty Charnin, until he died a couple years ago, was one of my dearest friends. Uh, all the cast remained close. Uh, uh-huh. Madeline until she died. Michael Carmer is in California teaching now. And Trisha O'Neill and I are still very, very close, like family. So we all bonded and we all became yeah. very close. It was us against him, you know? Yeah. So um, Martin Godfrey wrote a great book about Danny Kaye that has several chapters on it. And uh, he interviewed everybody that was alive then. So he has everybody's viewpoint. And the interesting thing is at the end of the chapter, at the end of the section about two by two, Marty says the thing was the only person who wasn't afraid of him was Walter Willison. Mm. And that was the truth. He had the muscle of the show and they were all afraid of what he would do. I wasn't afraid. It was like, hey, don't screw up my show. You know, I'm a, yeah. my dream. I'm a romantic leading man on Broadway. I have these incredible songs. I'm stopping the show twice a night. Yeah. It's my dream. I got rave reviews. I got a Tony animation. Don't screw it yeah. up. And I stopped talking to him. Yeah. Right after the Tonys, he did something even more unconscionable. Right after he came back into the show, actually, way before the Tonys, he did something that was pretty unconscionable. He... um Joan Copeland dies in the second act, and he was wearing that. It was the Tuesday after he came back in on Thursday. This is before the Tonys. And uh, Joan Copeland died. Her character, Esther, dies in the second act. He sings this beautiful, touching song called Hey, Girly. The family, the other kids are all crying, and, and uh, he then kisses, he says, he kisses her goodbye, and I walk over to him, and it's the first time the father and son have come together. They've been fighting for two hours. And they finally come together. He calls for his son. And as he's getting up to leave, I'm standing behind him. Joan Copeland's passed out on this ramp. And he stands up, and I put my arm around him. We walk off. Well, this particular performance, this is he came back in Thursday, the next Tuesday. He slipped. 
and his cast slipped and hit that platform she was on, which must have hurt like hell because it was, oh you know, yeah. he had, you know, I know what it's like because I just fractured an arm and I just whacked my thing yesterday on something and it hurts like hell. So it must have hurt like, but he fell into me and I caught him. Now to the audience, that just looked like grief. You know, his wife has mm-hmm. just died. He stands up and instead of me putting my arm around him, he fell into me. I caught him and helped him off. Well, he fell into me and in Danny's mind, he was never wrong. So he said, I don't know if I can say this, I'll say it, you can beep it up. He said, let go of me, you fucking asshole, and shoved me against the set. Oh, my god. He was wearing a body mic. Yeah, he shoved me against the set, fell against the set, slammed me against the wooden arc. The audience gasped. This huge gasp came out of the audience, like, (gasps) you know, and and I thought, I'm either going to never talk to him again, or I will... um, or I'll tell him off, and I you can't tell him off. You're 22 years old, you know. Yeah. Uh, but never talked to him again, and I didn't talk to him till right before, right when I left the show to do the Bernstein Mass in uh, in Washington. Um, I I didn't talk to him again, and that was a couple months before the Tonys that that happened. So I was already not speaking to him by the time that it happened because. Wow. But it was in, it's in books. You yeah. read about it in books. It yeah, was in yeah. the trades. Of course, then we didn't have the internet. But it was all yep. over the post and the news the next day. Craig Zayden wrote about it in After Dark. Yep. You know, how shocking that Danny Kaye did this. But, uh, yeah. And we hear know, those he... stories, you know, through its oral history of the theater. We hear them from, you know, people who were around and who have told other yeah. people and they passed down well, to it, us. It couldn't, have, it couldn't have happened. You know, it couldn't happen today. The equity would yeah. not permit such behavior. But he was the muscle of the show. And, yeah. um and he got away with it. You know, Maureen yeah. Stapleton and Betsy von Furstenberg were doing uh, good, uh, um, the uh, gingerbread lady across the street. And I, when he wouldn't let me go on that day, when he told the stage manager he refused to go on when I was nominated, I went to the dressing room and Betsy said, well, you've got to go to equity. Equity, you've got to take him up on charges, which, of course, they wouldn't do, you know, and he mm-hmm. was um, too powerful at the time. Yeah. So well, it was, you have it was amazing a, memories bl- anyway, right? So. Yeah, it was a blessing and a curse. And I must yeah. tell you, when I read about this on Facebook, it's very disconcerting because, um, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, what you said earlier, because he was, oh, well, he was rewriting yeah, Peter Stone wrote those funny lines from, no, Peter Stone wrote, no, none of, none of the ad-libs he said. And, oh, yeah. but, you know, Danny Kaye, you know, he had to do it because the book was not good. That's not true. I've done the mm-hmm. show four times now myself and played Noah. Yeah. It works like Flynn. I did it with George Rosenstock. He was brilliant. Um, I've seen it many times. It's a it's a good book and an emotional mm-hmm. book, and it's funny. And uh, there are plenty of laughs. He just was an unhappy, a very deeply troubled, unhappy man. And uh, yeah. but as I said, it gave me a career. It was uh, a turning point in my life. And everybody else in the show was just phenomenal and we all bonded together because of you know because of what we made a shared experience <laughs> so that's the short version there's Amazing. a lot more to it but well, you know thanks so yeah. much for sharing that it's so fascinating let's talk about pippin you were the standby for john rubenstein and then you took over the role so you had a chance to see the show develop and the character being created um what adjustments did you make when you took over the role well, to go back a little bit, um, you know, Pippin was in 1972. So by then I had done Norman Is That You. I'd done Two by Two, got the Tony nomination. Then after that, I had done Leonard Bernstein wrote um, 
two roles for me in the, in the mass, which Stephen Swart had written lyrics to. Steve had written the lyrics to uh, come collaborate with Lenny on the lyrics, which opened the Kennedy Center in Washington. And I, there were 22 Broadway people and there were only half as many roles. So every night, they, every performance they would switch. Well, in my case, I had a big solo as my ensemble character, a big number. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was doing the celebrant. So I had just come off that. And then a show called Wild and Wonderful, which was not a success, but and Ryan King was in the chorus, which is when we first met. And I said, gee, you should work for Bob Fosse. You're a perfect Fosse dancer. And she said, oh, I've always wanted to, you know. Well, then <laughs> the following year, I, Pippin wasn't on my radar. I was like, other things were happening. I was going out to do Two by Two in Summerstock. I was going out to do Prince Charming in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs for Disney at the Muni. And then um, I read this little article in Variety on the right-hand page, it said Irene Ryan was doing Pippin. And I went, oh, God, I love Irene Ryan, Granny of the Beverly Hillbillies. Now I really wanted to do the show. I wasn't interested in Fosse or anything. I just wanted to do that part. Well, as fate, but it was cast, I thought. So as fate would have it, about two days later, I got a phone call from Julie Hughes asking me to do a table read of the show and play Pippin. And this is like several months before rehearsal, about three months before rehearsal at Broadway Arts, all notable Broadway people sitting around a table. Um, Edith Miser played um, Granny, and Marilyn Sokol played Catherine. Very different scripts. Steve Schwartz sat at the piano, played all the songs. It was for Bob Fosse and the entire creative team. And we read through the entire show. And um, it was, you know, pre-production reading. And after that, I said to Julie Hughes, I'm really, now I really kind of want to do this. I really kind of love this part. And she said, well, it's been cast. This new kid, Johnny Rubenstein's doing it. And John and I knew each other because we'd been roommates. In fact, we toured together in On a Clear Day You Can hmm. See Forever a couple years earlier. So um, with various leading men, Howard Keel, John Raitt, John Erickson, Bill Hayes. And then we finally got to L.A. with John Cullum and Tammy Grimes, who did the West Coast premiere in L.A. and San Francisco. So we were good friends and sort of as a small clique. You know how there's a clique of kids and you always want to yeah. get ahead. Johnny, it was me in California. It was me, John Rubenstein, Judy Kay. And, um, yeah, it was the three of us and, and a couple others that ended up, thank God, going on to having our dreams come true on Broadway. So I wanted to do it because of Irene. And uh, after I did that read-through, the next day I got a call from Julie saying, uh, Bobby wants to know if you'd be interested in standing by. And I said, sure, because I really wanted to work with Irene Ryan. Mm -hmm. So I um, went to the – I got the deal, did the deal, got the job – Went to the first rehearsal. She was the first person I saw sitting there. And I said, I came out of the elevator. They were all doing a reading. And, and she was sitting on a little chair. And I said, oh, I love you. And she said, I love you too. And I <laughs> said, well, I'm, I'm covering Pip and I'll be, you know, uh, I'm, you'll see a lot of me. And she said, well, I said, well, thank God I'll have a man on the road. <laughs> That's what she said. And we did become, we became inseparable. We became best friends. I was with her all the time. and uh, And it was great because I wasn't, in the show, but I got to watch everything. So I really did get, as you say, get to watch the development of the show. I watched, you know, I sit there taking notes all the time. I was sort of like a fly on the wall and um, heard, would overhear Stuart and Bobby talking about why something was being done, why this was being done, why that was being staged a certain way. So it was a great learning experience. And um, John and I are very, very different. I mean, the first day, after that first day after I met Irene, the next person actually I saw was Annie Ryan King came running out of the room saying, 
you told me I should work with Bob Fosse. Now here we are. And she was covering Catherine. She said, we're going to be working together a lot. And then uh, John came out and John came up to me and said, what are you doing here? You got a Tony nomination last year. What are you doing standing by for me? And I said, well, first of all, I wonder where they're in, Ryan, and it's going to be a hit. He said, you really think so? I said, yeah, it's Bob Fosse, Stephen Schwartz, you know, great cast. Of course it's going to be a hit. I said, well, I hope you're right. And thank God I was. Uh, but so, but we're very, very different. You know, we're very different kinds of actors. They're a different kind of performer. And, um, and it was nice to be allowed the freedom to be that, you know, I didn't have to, you know, in many times when they were, and also standbys were different. You know, uh, I know, I think people know nowadays because nowadays, because standbys have saved Broadway during the pandemic, but yeah. you know, a standby back in 1970, you didn't. Once the show, you were at the theater every night for previews and rehearsals. Once the show opened, it was a great gig because you came in once a week on a Thursday, ran the show, and collected your paycheck. And that was yeah. it. And they would find you. They would call you. You call at six at night, check in. Am I on? And they said, no, you're not. But where are you going to be? You'd say, oh, I'm having dinner at my friends. Here's the phone number. Or I'll be watching this. I'll be watching applause. I'll be in, you know, on a, the row C, seat one or something. And if they needed you, they would come to the theater and they would track you down. They would find you. They didn't have cell phones. You know, Joy Joy France, who joined the show as standby for Catherine um, a few months later, said that uh, after I left the show, she said that she had a pager. I never got a pager. I just mm -hmm. checked in. But if they needed you, they found you, you know. Yeah. So it was a great gig. And then I would, you know, hang I could do other shows i could do a club act i could you know audition for other things and um so it was a great that for me it was a great experience and then of course hanging out with irene ryan that was really mm -hmm. the important part of it for me uh because she was alone in new york city it was her first time she'd been here in 20 years she'd just come off 10 years of starring in the beverly hillbillies she'd just come off of six months starring in a vegas act and her dream was to do a broadway show um i didn't know uh, at first that she was, you know, she had uh, that she had had a problem. She had a, had a, a, a minor stroke, but she didn't. Nobody knew, mm -hmm. and um, she basically just needed a friend. You know, she didn't. She didn't have an entourage and a team like nowadays. Everybody has their team nowadays and their entourage and their secretary. She came by herself, you know, and she was sixty-nine, which is probably the equivalent of like, I would say, eighty-nine, ninety today you know because people were older back then and um they people stay youthful much longer now so yeah. that was a great experience going on was a great experience um so how was uh talk about like the first time you performed as pippin on broadway okay well Tell this was that great <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty great because i i found out at 6 30 that i was going on and uh you know shows were at 8 30 then and uh, i found out at 6 30 i was going on and got to the theater, was getting in my makeup, and I, my two friends, two close friends, Barbara Custer and Liz Spear, came into my dressing room. Because, of course, then you could just walk backstage into your friend's dressing room. So they came in and they said, well, when you take over a show, you really take over a show. And uh, I said, what are you talking about? They said, well, all of 45th Street is blocked off. It's their policemen on horseback. There's yellow tape. Uh, it turned out the mayor of Moscow was coming to the show that night. So okay. <laughs> it was a very big deal. So I went on, did the show. Everything was great. It was great being on stage with Irene. That was just a thrill because 
her scene actually, what Bobby did a great thing in rehearsal. Um, jump me back for a second. He he used me. If John was busy doing a big dance number in a room or rehearsing something, then he would grab me and take me into another room to work on a scene. And I was the first thing I did, and I was the first one that Irene's scene was staged with. So I got to be with her. I think the first time she did it with John was in the first run-through. So I was kind of lucky because I got to do that scene with her. So doing it on stage with her, seeing the joy when she brought down the house was incredible. And everything went great until I got to On the Right Track with uh, second act number with Ben Vereen, which is a dance. And I had never won the costume before. And the pants are were very, very tight, tight knit leggings that fit you skin tight. And there were bell bottoms. But they had a strap that went all the way around them that kept them tight to your legs below the knee. Well, the dresser forgot to put the strap on. Oh, no. So they're stretch pants. <laughs> so as I'm dancing with Ben Vereen, my pants start to get longer. And the longer <laughs> they get, the harder it is not to step on them. The audience sees what's going on. So the audience is, they realize my pants are getting longer. God forbid they should fall <laughs> off. And I'm just trying to pull them up and not let them stretch. Ben is looking at me like, what the hell is going on? He has not a clue. And, you know, the audience is laughing, but they're with me. And yeah. uh, by the end of the number, they're still brought down the house like I'd always do with John. But the audience, you know, is laughing as well. So anyway, but we got through it. But it was kind of scary because I just didn't know. Oh, yeah, those had to be tied up. So that happened. But everything else was fine. After the show, um, the mayor of Moscow came back on stage, congratulated I, all of us, congratulated Irene and me and asked us if we'd come and sing in Russia. Can you imagine? And now in 1972, being invited to sing in Russia Cold was... <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think so. Now, you know, no, I don't think so. so and even then I now, walked... forget about it. Like five years oh, ago, forget maybe. About it, really, yeah, forget <laughs> about it really now. You know, uh, but it was, t if you even knew somebody from Russia back in 1972, forget it, you were out of politics. So, yeah. uh, but yeah, then I walked off stage after that. that so first, you know, it was a great experience going on. Great, incredible audience. And and the, the plus was that, and one of the reasons they had cast me was that, you know, sometimes when they announce the understudy of the standbys going on, the audience will get grown or whatever because they don't know yeah. who it is, even if it's somebody fabulous. But in those days, you know, people like uh, Helen Gallagher and and uh, Gretchen Weiler, who had started Broadway shows, would stand by for Betty Bacall in applause. So they would have like a, a comparable name or somebody that was known, you know. Mm -hmm. So because mm -hmm. I had done two by two and had become very popular in the previous year, when I went on, the audience did leave. <laughs> they went, oh, yeah, that guy, you know. Yeah. So that was good. So I, they were on my side from the start, which was really good. And um, and then when I walked off stage, I ran smack dab into Lucy Arnaz, whom I had never met, who had come backstage to introduce herself and say hello. She was there with her then-boyfriend, Jim Bailey. And, um, and she and I became the best of friends, like instantly became best of friends. We have remained friends all these years. She's always been one of my closest friends. She's, you know, we're all, always there for me. And, and, and what was kind of amazing is then 42 years later, I get this phone call from Lucy said, well, you want to come to my opening night at Pippin because I was at your opening night in Pippin. So of course I did. And I was like third row on the aisle and it was un it was so surreal. I mean, here it is, forty two years later. Now I'm watching. She watched my opening night as Pippin. Now I'm watching her opening night as Granny, mm. who she'd been playing on tour, and 
At the time I, she had seen me and Pippin, Granny, Irene Ryan, was my best friend. And Lucy is now my, one of my best friends. So it was quite, it was like, I don't know, full circle or something. Yeah. It was pretty, it was pretty, it was pretty cool, you know. Yeah. And um, I also got, Josh Logan was also at that performance and, uh, and cast me in a show the next day. He came and stood in the back, which is what people did back in those days. The next day, the the ushers after the show said, oh, my God, Josh Logan was here. He has to stand in the back. You know, and I, I don't know if people even realize who Josh Logan is nowadays, but he, you know, won a Pulitzer Prize for writing South Pacific and directing South Pacific, and he directed Picnic, and, you know, yeah. So, uh, so, we, so all those things that you think won't happen when you take over a show. On opening night, you expect to get mentioned in the papers. You expect to meet great people. You expect to maybe somebody's going to call and offer you a job the next day. You don't expect it when you take over as a standby. But I was kind of like the theater gods looked over me and and, uh, and all these wonderful things happened because of my going on at Pippin. So yeah. it led to so many other wonderful things, you know, in my yeah. life. It was great. What else would you like to know? I'm talking too much. (laughs) No, it's all amazing. I wanted to ask you, um, I mean, it's clearly the impact that one show has had on your life. And I think every actor has that experience. They always have that one experience that becomes a pivotal moment for them and kind of charts the rest of their life in a a certain direction. Um, And having done this podcast, you know, I've heard so many of those stories. I wanted to ask you about Pippin itself, the show. Like, why do you think... It has endured after all this time. It's so popular. It's done all the time, you know, in schools and colleges and community theaters. And, and you know, major revivals are happening in in the big theaters across the country as well as recently on Broadway. What it, What is it about this show that you think um, makes it so beloved and, and timeless in a way? That's a very good question. Well, I think it's a couple things. I think it's because Motown did a record that while it doesn't sound like most Broadway cast recordings and the arrangements are backup singers were added, they did backup vocals to sweeten the, the real singers in the show. Um, the arrangements were tweaked. They weren't necessarily the show arrangements. They were made more poppy. Um, John, in fact, sings Corner of the Sky, not like he sang it in the show, but like a quiet sort of pop singer of the day, uh, which he was asked to do. And, so it was accessible, I believe, to kids because, first of all, it's about a prince. It's also about a, oh, it's a, so it's a fairy tale, but it's also about a, a young man who is going through the various states. What's going to work for me? You know, is, do I need to go to war? Is that going to work? No, that doesn't work. Well, what about politics? No, that doesn't work. Well, what about sex? You know, no, that doesn't work either. You know, mean, meaningless, mean, mindless sex or meaningless sex. Uh, that doesn't work. Uh, so, well, what's next? You know, well, I'm stuck now with this woman and this kid. That isn't it, so I'll leave. But then when he's offered the ultimate, which is okay, which is what they've been leading towards, we're going to kill you, kill yourself, because that's the ultimate fulfillment. Uh, and he goes, wait a minute, I'll take the wife and the kid. You know, it's not so bad, you know, to to just have a wonderful life with a wife and a child and, and a family. There are other things in life besides being extraordinary and the most famous, successful person in the world. So... I have read some things online that I find interesting because with the teenage suicide rate up today, it's very tragic. And there are a lot of kids who are struggling with this issue. And a lot of kids who feel like that character feels. So I think they relate to this kid. 
And the fact that he decides not to do it, I think is an uplifting message for, for kids. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're not intimidated by the show. You know, it's not South Pacific. It's not Ezio Pinza. It's not, uh, you know, they're accessible songs. Every kid auditions with Corner of the Sky. To this day, it's still one of the most popular audition songs uh, because yeah. it's, a, it's a wonderful I Want song. It's a great song. Johnny sings it brilliantly. But it's just a great song. And, um, and I think young men, it's the ideal part for a young boy. So kid in high school, man, that's, I want to do that at my school, you know, or my community yeah. theater. Plus it has parts for character actors. Plus it has, you know, sexy parts. Now, I've been told that they, obviously, when they do it in high school and things like that, I don't think they quite realize how scandalous it was when it opened because there were even critics who said, oh, my God. This is, you know, too sexy, too vulgar, you know, too shocking. Mm-hmm. These women are, you know, too sexy. Yeah. They're scandally clad. But all that's gone today. You know, I mean, for yeah. kids today when they do it, it's just, it, ha- it works on so many levels. So I think yeah. it's, um, I think it's every kid's dream show to do, don't you? I mean, how do you feel yeah. about it? I mean, I think for me, the thing about it is that it's exactly what you just said. It's accessible and it can support so many visions. That's what I love about it. It can be a circus. It can be this. It can be that. It can be, you know, very um, realistic, but it, it can be very fantastical. And it can support all those visions and still be an awesome show regardless. And I think I that's agree. what makes it like, so if you're, you know, if you're in a community theater or college and you don't have, you know, the funds to do a huge physical production, it doesn't matter because it can be very simple, but it can also be kind of fun and you know, we saw the Broadway revival, which was a literal circus, and it it can work with all of that on it or with none of it. Um, I worked I on Pippin at Center Theater Group when we did it with Deaf West Theater, and it was amazing with Deaf West. And, and you know, Charlemagne was played by the actor who won the Oscar last year for CODA. Wow. Um, and so, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful production with, uh, you know, actors who performed in ASL, but also performed, you know, with voices. Um, So I think that's the thing about it is that it's so malleable and kind of, it was brilliant to create a show that could exist in almost any, under any vision, any ecosystem that you put it in, you know? And I think that's what makes it, makes people want to produce it over and over again. I think so too. And you know, it's interesting because the first show that I told you I did the reading of, the first script, it was more like Camelot. Uh, you know, Steve had done a version called Pippin Pippin in college, and it was more of a traditional traditional kind of musical, you know, blackouts, lights up, and yep. very much more Camelot-ish is my, what I keep alluding to. And yeah. then Bob contributed to it and, and made it through composed and added a lot of elements to it. And, yeah. um, and also you have to keep in mind something that's interesting too. You know, kids are never going to stop thinking – I want to be something big and important, and how do I find that? It's never going to change. But back then, something else was going on, and that was that the same thing in 2 by 2 My character in 2 by 2 was basically a flower child, Noah's youngest son. We were in the middle of the Vietnam War. He believed God shouldn't destroy the world. And his song, Something Somewhere in 2 by 2 my song, my first song, is, you know, there's got to be something that you like. Please don't destroy the world. Um, mm-hmm. It's, and in the end, the solution is it's up to man, man to make or break the world. And that 
So, so kids related to two, being two by two because they related to that kid who thought God shouldn't destroy the world. Because we were afraid the Vietnam War was the end of the world. We were afraid we're all yeah. going to get killed. Terrible things going to happen. Well, that was baby stuff compared to what's going on now. So sadly, and the same with Pippin. Pippin has a big war number, and it's ba- it's a sorry, uh, satirical. It's a protest. It's a war protest number. And again, the Vietnam War was still going on. You know, and we yeah. were facing political problems with Watergate. You know, and there's a section about politics. So it deals with all the things that you would wish by now were outdated, and we don't have those problems anymore. But alas, we still have, please, political problems. We still are facing war. We still are facing, you know, the threat of extinction. We still are facing so many problems that are addressed in a in in this show in a maybe more lighthearted way, but nonetheless are addressed. Yeah. And I think kids relate to that, particularly kids relate to that. And it, yeah. because it's about a group of players, it does work in in many, many different ways. Uh, I think there was a production in London where they did it as a, a, a computer game. Whether that mm-hmm. worked or not, it was still was a noble effort. Yeah. And like you said, you know, it could be done on a... Uh, the set was Tony Walton's set was spectacular, but deceptively simple. It was gorgeous, but it could be done on a very simple set, you know. And it, it could be done without Bob Fosse's fantastic choreography, you know. It's the telling of the story, and and I think it, yeah, I think it's a it's a universal themes, um, and kids relate to it. Kids relate yeah. to it, and adults that's, relate that's to right. it. That's right. It's you know who was really good mentioned... in the show too? What I was going to say the the. You mentioned the 60s, and it's funny because I have so many young people work for me, and you know I, I co- find myself constantly apologizing for the state of the world that we're leaving them in. But then the only thing that I can think to say is that you know there is hope because we, you know, the U.S. survived the 60s, <laughs> and oh. so this too is survivable. It seems terrible, but I, I can't imagine what it was like to go through the 60s and see all your friends going to war and see you know the sort of the sexual revolution happening but also the fact that uh you know a whole segment of the population was not treated equally i mean just you know we have our problems now too but we i just somehow have to hang on to hope that we made it through the 60s and we hopefully will survive this era as well this era of change well, you know, um, even in the 60s, there was something else going on that even is addressed in this show. I had a really good friend in high school, a wonderful girl named Meredith Carpenter, very talented actress, and um, and we had stayed in touch. But she went to protest the Vietnam War in Washington, and she was, in, but she was so high on whatever drugs she was taking that she did what Pippin is is what they want Pippin to do that he does it. Is she literally set herself on fire in front of the White House? Oh my gosh. And, Killed herself, yeah, because it, it protests to the war. I, how her mind ever got to that place is terrifying, yeah. but she did it. So the idea of somebody doing something in protest, it was mm-hmm. not so far-fetched back then. No. Um, no. Not so far-fetched now either, but now I think we're facing just some of the... It, it's, uh, you know, I, I was directing a young girl in something a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and, and I was talking to Joanna Rush, who's my assistant director, slash choreographer and Joanna and I were talking about what was going on in the state of the world and, all, and she overheard us and she said yeah you know you don't know what it's like you know to wake up every day she said you know when when I'm 50 years old there may not be a world there may mm-hmm. not be 
a planet. It may be after the apocalypse. And that is one thing that through all the things we went through in the 60s and 70s, through all of that, um, we never had to worry about going to school and getting shot. We never were, f- we were afraid to go to school for other reasons because of bullies and things like that. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't that horrific fear and that threat, how it must feel to be. Yeah. Parents didn't have to worry about sending their kids to school. We didn't have to worry about that. And I don't think there was ever a point when any of us thought, gee, when I'm 50 years old, will the world still be here? We yeah. never had that fear. So kids live today yeah. with a lot more. It is true. Be a burdensome ton than they did back well, then. But I, you as know, you say, I believe there's hope. Yeah, I'm a Gen Xer, so I didn't believe the world would be here uh, at this time because oh, of, of the Cold War, you know, because of uh-huh. nuclear weapons. And so, you know, that was my era, the 80s, and just thinking, oh my God, the planet's going to be blown up. And, you know, we're hanging in there. And uh, luckily, we have Let's wonderful things. You know, we have art and we have musicals and we have, you know, beautiful things. The, to celebrate that we are here. And that, I agree, um, I agree. Uh, so you're producing the concert um, yeah. at 54 Below. You know, we're celebrating uh, Pippin, uh, the 50th anniversary. So, And this is the second reunion concert that you've organized. The first was the Grand Hotel reunion in 2015, which I actually was able to see and was incredible. Oh, um, you saw it. Oh, That great. was before I was working here, believe it or not. Um, what inspired you to put together this reunion? Well, last year, I got an, an email, a message from Candy Brown, who was in the show, saying, well, I guess we'll see each other soon because um, we'll obviously do something for our 50th anniversary reunion. And then nothing was happening and nothing was happening, nothing was happening. And then in May of last year, for Rob Schneider, I did... Um, I stayed pretty much in lockdown until then. I went out and got a haircut, got my vaccinations. Otherwise, otherwise, I stayed in lockdown. There was just nothing to do. All the jobs had fallen through because of the pandemic. And Rod asked me to do my songs from 2 by 2 in a, an event called 10 Years of Musical Theater History at 54 Below, celebrating your 10th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And when I was doing the show, I kept thinking, God, I love this room. This is such a great space. I would really like to do something in this room. And this I, Candy had written me that thing about we'd probably be getting together, and I said, I said, well, what about doing Pippin? And and Rob said, well, I'm, I'm too many other things going on. I'm too busy, so um, I can't take on anything else this year. And so I thought about it some more, and thought about it some more, and and then I got a couple more emails from people in the cast, and nothing was being done. And I thought, this is 50 years, and yeah. at that point there was still 13 of us left in the show. There are now 12. There are 13 of us left. Um, and I thought, we should do, we got to do something. So um, I wrote Jennifer, and Jennifer loved the, Jennifer Ashley Tepper, sweetheart, loved the idea, and uh, was very supportive. And I contacted, I had contacted actually most of the people first and said, if we did this, would you do this? And everybody was really enthusiastic and on board, um, especially John Rubenstein. He's just the best. But all of them, all of them were incredibly supportive and excited because, um, attention has to be paid. I mean, how many times do you get to go see a concert with the people you've listened to on a cast record for 50 mm-hmm. years? All those kids Incredible. who did the shows in high school that are now adults, everybody. Well, they've listened to John Rubenstein sing Corner of the Sky for 50 years on that cast recording. How often do you get to see that person who is now, you know, in his 70s, singing the songs he introduced? It's like seeing Judy Garland sing Over the Rainbow or something, you know? Yeah. So. 
Absolutely. Judy, so John is also John did the tour. You know, he was he played. I must say, I never thought Charlemagne was a very good part. And then I saw John play it when he took over the role on Broadway, and he turned that part into King Lear. He was astonishing. He's such a brilliant actor. And um, so when when you saw the Grand Hotel cost, concert, it was really cool because we were still age appropriate for all the parts. So we could do sort of a tab version of the show because there already is a narrator in the show. The doctor already narrates it mm -hmm. and tell the story and play the parts we had played. Lillian Montevecchi was breathtaking, as I'm sure you remember. Oh, she was so good. Else. Unbelievable, <laughs> right? So yeah. with this show, obviously, we can't tell the story because we're all not age appropriate for the parts. <laughs> so it's, it's, although it will be still a little bit immersive, it's a different kind of concert because it's a concert of hearing people sing the songs they sang on Broadway. Um, I mean, Candy Brown, Cheryl Clark, Gene Foote, Jennifer Aaron Smith, and Pamela Sousa were those, were in the show. You saw them if you saw the Broadway show. You know, you saw them if you saw the PBS version. You saw them, you know, they're sort of, they became, also they became the Fosse dancers. Up until yeah. Pippin, dancers had danced for Bob Fosse, but there were no people that were called, oh, you're a Fosse dancer. Exactly. The Fosse dancers yeah. who went on, they all went on to work with Bob in, in Chicago. The, the women were in Chicago. Gene Foote directed the show in, it's in uh, Mexico and in, in, in London. And, um, you know, they've all gone to, on to distinguished careers in their own right. And then we have Will McMillan, who was standby for the little boy, Theo, we keep mm -hmm. calling him the young, and he's now 60. <laughs> but he's like the young boy in the show, you know? Yeah. And he's going to do something special. And okay. Leland Palmer, who retired, you know, who the last Broadway show she did oh was Pippin. She, she went to L.A. Uh, she left the show after a year. She went to L.A. and did, um, of course, she was in all that jazz, did uh, the movie uh, Nijinsky. Is it Nijinsky? No, Valentino. Uh, Valentino with Nureyev. She... Um, did a lot of stage shows out there and TV film. And then she retired 40 years ago. She lives in a small town in California where she teaches acting, community theater, and she performs occasionally with her daughter, Pearl. And uh, so this is the first time she will be back on a New York stage in 50 years doing a song that she introduced. And in her case, it's very, it's very personal to her because... She was very unhappy with the recording because of the time constraints on records back then. Steve sped up her song. Oh, my so goodness. So she doesn't, she does, when she sings, you hear spread a little sunshine on the record, she sounds like Minnie Mouse. So Leland was heartbroken when she got the record and went, oh, my God, it doesn't sound like me. And Steve said, well, there wasn't enough room on the record. It was either speed it up or not use it. But so for 50 years, she's had a broken heart because she does. So finally, oh she gets gosh. to redeem herself and sing it like she really sings it you know because she was she inspired me from the show your own thing one yeah. of the first shows i ever did she was in she was great and um and joy franz was the first uh after 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 uh ann reinking left the show uh joy franz became standby for Catherine, as i was standby for pippin and she um she covered jill she covered betty and then she played it at the end of the run for a couple of years so joy was wasn't there from day one, but she was, she's the first one that's still around that was there mm -hmm. playing that part. So she pretty much was. She was with the original cast. So, and what a Johnny, heartbreaking I mean, story sure. about Leland. And for the, for the young people that are listening, we want to say that, that there's no room. It's because it's a vinyl record and there's limited space on it. 
um, which we don't have now, obviously, because songs can be as long as you want. But back then, everything had to fit on a vinyl record. And that's why songs were only three minutes long for the, you know, the singles were 45s. So, um, yeah, you you had a limited, you had, you had a limited space. That's why in in Pippin, you don't hear dance music. You don't hear uh, a lot of the numbers because also it was Motown. So they were creating a different kind of record, but Mm -hmm. you don't hear buttons of numbers. Sometimes there's fade outs, you know, um, it's a deceptive record. It doesn't really capture the spirit of the Broadway show. And in this case, had to squeeze in just to get her number on the record because also her number is a, it's a form that Bob Fosse later developed even further in, in Chicago in the Roxy Hart number. And, uh, when, when she, Leland does the number in the actual show, she sings a little bit of the song. She does a little bit of plot. She's manipulating mm-hmm. the story. And then she sings a little bit more of the song. Then she manipulates some more plot, more dialogue. Then it goes back into the song again. So it's an entire, like, I don't know, it must be at least a 12-minute sequence of the show, but yeah. it's like a little two-and-a-half-minute song on the record. So, um, And she's quite talented. I mean, she's really happy doing what she does. She has a wonderful daughter she raised, and she, she, uh, she's a pretty amazing person. She does a lot of wonderful, great things for the community and, and, uh, and is so happy. She just decided, you know, she started before a lot of us because she was in the chorus of Little Me for Bob Fosse. And then she did her own thing, and and uh, she was, a, but she was a, a Michael Bennett dancer in the beginning before she did her own thing. So she just forty years ago decided, you know, I've done all these wonderful things. I think I want to. And she'd been nominated for a Tony Award for Pippin. She decided it was time to just take a step back, and she's and now she's coming back, you know. Um, for fans that can't make it in person. Uh... We're thrilled to say that the show is going to be live streamed as well. Is that yes. am I right? Say that yes. Yes, you are. <laughs> and what's really cool about that is is uh, they've decided to do it. The first we, well, we were going to do just two performances, and then we sold out in like thirty minutes or something. So Jennifer asked if we would do a second night. So that's when the second night was added, which also sold out very quickly. So then. Um, Jennifer and everybody, you all worked it out so that we could do a streaming performance, but it's going to be the first performance on the second night, February 7th. So we will have had two shows under our belts to make all our mistakes and make it (laughs) tighter. And by the time we do, it'll be the third performance. And I also think it's great because, you know, when you do four performances, the first night is exciting, but then you're going to oh, I have to go back. How to recreate that excitement Mm -hmm. the second night. But streaming it, it's a whole new excitement. It's like we have something new to look forward to. And all our friends in Podunk, Iowa and around the world, even I have there's yeah. a fan base in Australia. I do a radio show there pretty frequently, and uh, oh, great. there are a lot of fans in Australia that love musical theater that are going to be watching too. So it's a great opportunity, and it only streams the one time. You know, it's not like on demand later. Yep. So mm-hmm. if anybody wants to see it, they'll be able to see it. And I've seen streaming things for Fifty Four Below, and the techni- the technical aspects are great. I mean, the the camera work is really exceptional. Yeah. They they don't miss a trick. We do. We have a great team. Yeah. Yeah, we do have a great team and it's so exciting for us to to be streaming this particular show because we know that Well there's no place like fifty four below because well but also, you know, there's no place like it because it's not just a nightclub. First of all, the design is beautiful. It's very classy. It's like a speakeasy from the nineteen twenties with Texas Guinan's pictures all over. But what I also love about it is that it's not 
an, a, it's really somewhere between a nightclub and a theater. You know what I mean? It's a theater experience when you go to 54 Below. And uh, I like that. I mean, it, it, because of the layout of the room, you can do things that, that you can't do in other nightclubs, you know? And because the technical aspects of it are, are, for, are all, you know, state-of-the-art, uh, you have... It's a pretty great place. I love it. I love it every time I appear there. And I'm, I love doing Grand Hotel there, and I'm really excited about this. Well, I we definitely cat, love having you. I forgot to mention Michael Levine, our brilliant musical director who does it. Michael Levine is our brilliant musical director. He does a lot of shows at 54 Below. He did the 10 years of musical comedy. He's also a theater archivist at Thorian, and he's doing, he's doing a, a fame show coming up. Uh, yeah. a fame a reunion coming up shortly and Michael is our musical director and he's just kind of brilliant so, well uh, I will tell you that great. I love Michael because he is my neighbor we live in the same building oh, yeah. oh my god <laughs> so I pass you by every time I go to see him we probably have been in the elevator together and not known it Walter I bet um, you we have Bella that's incredible <laughs> so he's yeah he's he's the best I mean all of these people the I can't wait you know none all of us I this is the first time well, there's one person, Shane Nickerson, who played a little boy. He's no longer performing. One person in California, Catherine Doby, who's not able to be with us. And we lost to Corthaz just a couple of weeks ago, Richard Corthaz, who was in the original cast. But mm -hmm. these 10 people, or one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, including myself, nine, um, we have never, we have not been together in one room in 50 years, you know, or 45 years, say. And, uh, no, more than 45 years, yeah, 50 years. So um, it's it's a pretty special. And yeah. and I wanted to say something else. I'm also singing the show, but John's doing Pippin, but I'm doing, we're doing something kind of special together, John and I, and then um, with Joy. And uh, and my section, I'm actually paying tribute to Irene Ryan. So my section is the tribute to Irene. I'm hosting and narrating, but also paying tribute to Irene, which brings me a great deal of joy because I loved her very much. And, you know, she left the show six months into the run because she, um, her illness, her brain tumor got the best of her and she went to California and, uh, and into the hospital for six weeks and then left us, you know, but her dream was to do a Broadway show and she got to do it and she changed my life in innumerable ways too many to even go into here. But, uh, but I liked her very much, so it's giving me great personal pleasure to be able to go on oh, stage and, and pay tribute to her as part of our, as part of our event. Well, you we know. couldn't be more excited to celebrate this night with you. Uh, so again, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, for everybody thank listening, you, Nella. don't miss Pippin, the 50th anniversary original Broadway cast reunion concert at 54 Below on February 6th and 7th at 7 p.m. and at 9.30 p.m., streaming live on February 7th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, tickets and information, 54below.com. Not to be missed. Once-in-a-lifetime event. You've been listening to the 54 Below podcast, part of the Broadway Podcast Network. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R E R I S E T H E A T R E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 